according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We're working our way through the hall of fame of faith that's contained in this chapter. A survey of Old Testament believers and their walk by faith for the glory of Jesus Christ. Blessings that we have. The things uh, written in earlier times are written for our instruction. And we learn from these examples and we realize that uh, we have been given so much more. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the, uh, all of the, the privileges and blessings of the church age uh, whereby we are believer priests before the Lord. In all these things, and anytime I read through and I see by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Moses, we realize these men were faithful. These men, these women, these believers were faithful and they've been given so much less than what you and I have been given. As we understand to whom much is given shall much be required. We've been entrusted with that much more. We are accountable that much more. And so as we read these examples, today we have Moses and uh, leaving Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And we have these examples and we have to ask ourselves, do I have that kind of faith given that I've been given so much? The blessings that we have before the Lord. All right, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you today thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing that by your grace we can grow in the truth. We thank you, Father, for the living and abiding Word of God. We have the written canon. We have the living canon. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the blessings we have in Christ. And we call upon you now to open the eyes of our understanding and to bless our study. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that he searches all things, even the deep things of God. There's not a passage of Scripture that we are afraid of, Father, because we know that your Spirit will teach us today. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we introduced Moses a week or two ago, a couple weeks back. Moses gets a stretch here, seven verses or so. We get starting in verse 23, by faith Moses. Verse 24, by faith Moses. And it continues Really, verse 23 was about his parents, but that's okay. It's still the Moses portion of this this chapter. So by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The parents had no fear of the king, and that's a good thing because that's going to now fall upon Moses. What will his fear be when he uh, has to depart from Egypt? By faith Moses, verse 24 says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have. He could have selected that as a route to go. He could have made that his defense. When uh, he had killed the Egyptian, he could have just pulled rank and claimed the the perks of being uh, Pharaoh's daughter and even made his own play for the throne at that point and be sovereignly immune from any consequences of of his actions. But he chose not to. And as it says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And of course, many uh, parallels and illustrations can bring this passage to you and I for our application with respect to how do we operate in this fallen world and who do we identify with. And uh, when we recognize that it's tempting, when we recognize that uh, we could go along with the world's... uh, activities, the world's way of thinking, the world's uh, uh, procedures, we could, go, we could run with a crowd. We could do all of that. And many Christians do. But Moses chose not to. And we choose not to. We choose to live the Word of God. We don't just attend a Bible church so we can know a lot of stuff. We learn the Word of God so that we can live the Word of God. So that we identify with the body of Christ and we stand forth as, uh, as different. And this is what we see here as well. So choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
looking to the reward. And this has our parallel as well. We discussed with respect to how do we evaluate wealth? What is our perspective on earthly wealth? Uh, When we understand the value of laying up treasure in heaven and having a reward, having an inheritance waiting for us in glory, the fact is that, uh, you know, the poorest of of church mice, so to speak, the most humble of believers in the church age is is uh, a million times a millionaire as it comes to the divine wealth of what we have before the Lord because we're royal family. The royal family of God, the present stewardship of the church is far greater than anything Israel ever imagined, the Gentiles, the angels. All of this is our position in Christ. And so having the right perspective and the reward that he was looking forward to Uh, the reproaches of Christ, greater riches. It is greater riches. The value of the Word of God is far above rubies, is far above anything. The silver and gold are called perishable. We have an eternal glory that we have awaiting us. All right, so he was looking for the reward. All of that takes us now to today's verse, which is verse 27, and then uh, next week in verse 28 with respect to the Passover. All right, so by faith... He left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. What, great, uh, what a great tandem that we have this verse at the same time that we have the uh, passage in Colossians 1. See, first hour we're in Colossians and we talk about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, and how Jesus is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. So understand, here is another use of the term invisible, and yet it can be seen. The unseen can be seen so long as you walk by faith. Remember, backing up to verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so it may be invisible to our earthly eyes. It may be unseen by our human experience. But when we walk by faith, when we have our spiritual eyes open, we can see the spiritual. We can spiritually see the spiritual so long as you have eyes to see it. And Moses had eyes to see it. You and I have eyes to see it. You know, you think of the passages like he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, Something comparable would be he that has an eye, let him see. Okay, If you have eyes to see, then make sure you see what God's showing you. That's the point. We have spiritual eyes. And it's not, by the way, it's not the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives us this. It's the living human spirit that gives us this. When you are born again, when you are made alive by faith in Christ, uh, whether you're a New Testament believer or an Old Testament believer, no difference in the sense that your human spirit is made alive. And with a living human spirit, you can see and you can hear the spiritual uh, messages that God is communicating. And so seeing Him who is unseen, and this is the faith exercise that we have. All right. I advance my slide here. Where are we? Nope. There we go. Don't want to back up all the way to verse 1. That would take too long. All right. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt. Now, we've noticed a number of times that the author in Hebrews 11 is getting us information that we would not be privy to if we were limited to what is recorded in Genesis or what is recorded in Exodus. We've had at least two, I'm thinking three examples uh, that have been glaring examples. We have in Hebrews 11, we have the praising of Sarah and uh, that she received the ability to conceive. And, and uh, in verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. And we read this and we believe this because it's Scripture. But going back to Genesis, I don't see faith. I see laughing. All right? And then I see denying laughing when the Lord calls her on it. He said, why did Sarah laugh? And she said, oh, I didn't laugh. He said, oh, you did laugh. Okay? And so we have passages like that. We have other passages with Abraham and uh, where he grew strong in the faith without doubting. And then, really? Because I go back to Genesis and I see I see, you know, the Hagar thing with the handmaiden and the baby with Ishmael. And, and so thank God for Hebrews, okay? The same Holy Spirit that inspired the, the, the Torah, inspired Genesis and Exodus and these stories, the same Holy Spirit knows the rest of the story. He knows the thought process. He knows 
what they were thinking when they considered what they considered when they made the choices that they made. And Hebrews gives us that. So when we have um, Sarah's considerations in verse 11 here of Hebrews 11, 11, Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. If you find a promise hard to believe, ask yourself, do I believe the one who's making the promise? (laughs) That's what it comes down to. My faith is in Christ. And the promise is my sins are forgiven and I have eternal life. Are you kidding me? That's hard to believe. But I believe the one making the promise. I place my faith in Christ. And she placed her faith in Christ, in God. Considered him faithful who had promised. Same thing with Abraham. Abraham considered Notice the thought process that's, uh, that's mentioned there. In verse 19, Abraham, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, by which he also received him back as a type. So Hebrews is, is really blessing us in this, in this chapter because it's giving us what Sarah considered. It's giving us what Abraham considered. And Genesis didn't give us either of those. Exodus is not giving us what Moses considered. It just tells us what Moses did, right? And Moses is the guy that wrote it. (laughs) Moses wrote Exodus, told us what he did. Didn't spell out everything he was considering in the way that Hebrews is doing for us here. So we can rejoice uh, with the Lord here. All right, so Sarah, Abraham, I think we've got other um, inferences there. Jacob, I would not have seen faith in Jacob at all. When uh, I'm reading Genesis, he seemed bitter. He was complaining about how few years he had lived when he had lived, you know, 130 years and how few and unpleasant they've been, things like that. But Hebrews 11 says it was faith, calls it faith. Likewise, uh, Moses' parents, they lied, but Hebrews 11 calls it faith. We're going to get to Rahab the harlot. She lies. Hebrews 11 calls it faith. So we have all these things now to look forward to. All right. So by faith he left Egypt. Is that really what I read in Exodus? By faith? Well, Hebrews 11 says so. Moses left Egypt for Midian on a faith basis with his eyes on the Lord. With his eyes on the Lord. Now hold your finger here and let's turn back to Exodus 2 and let's see what Exodus has to say. Since Moses wrote Exodus, I think we can be interested in what he has to say on this episode. Exodus 2.15. Remember uh, a week ago we were discussing the uh, murder that he committed? Premeditated murder. He plotted it, he planned it, he looked this way and that, he tried to cover his tracks. All right. so if you weren't with us next week we uh, looked at verses 11 through 14. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and looked upon their hard labors. And that's just a very brief description. But Hebrews 11 says he was choosing to identify with the people of God. And uh, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And uh, so he looked this way and that. This is premeditation. This is intent. This is uh, covering your tracks. When you're preparing an alibi, that's premeditated murder. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. I mean, all of this acknowledgement of guilt. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with one another. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? We don't have the considerations. We don't have what he was thinking about, what he considered. Stephen preaches it in Acts 7. Stephen said he thought that they would accept him as their redeemer, as their deliverer. And far from it. Instead, the uh, Jew said, who, uh, one of the two said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? So Moses was wrong in what he was considering there. Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Now we have a statement of fear 
in verse 14, but what's the fear directed towards? What's the fear centered on? Hebrews 11 says he didn't fear Pharaoh, but he does have fear in verse 14. Hebrews says it's faith. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king. So now we look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, now how did he hear about it? Through what agency? How many days go by? There's a time frame here that the verse is just written matter of fact. We don't know. It's days, weeks, months. But Pharaoh heard of this matter. The dead Egyptian has a family and the dead Egyptian's family has connections and the connections start uh, reporting what they've heard. And yeah, you know, you hear what you hear what you hear. You heard from a guy who heard from a guy who heard from a guy. And we think this Egyptian is dead and buried somewhere. We haven't found the body, but it's reported that someone in Pharaoh's house did it. So now he tries to kill Moses. Again, we don't know. It's not spelled out. Once, twice, three times. How many spears did Saul chuck at David? <laughs> you know, trying to kill David on repeated occasions. You know, David stuck around a lot with a guy throwing spears at him. I, you know, I think I would have learned after the first spear and been elsewhere after that, you know. But we don't know. How many times did he try to kill Moses? Now Hebrews 11 says he didn't fear Pharaoh, but here it says Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. All right, so we have, we're going to put Scripture together with Scripture. It's called rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's what Exodus says, here's what Hebrews says. Let's harmonize because it says he fled from the presence of Pharaoh, but it was a faith fleeing. It was not a fear fleeing. You can flee in fear and you can flee in faith. We're going to show both. We're going to show Jesus in the example of this. He sat down by a well. Now what I find remarkable, God's got a sense of humor. God's got a marvelous sense of humor. And so now now I'm going to trap your second finger (laughs) because uh, I want to remind all of us of the Acts 7 speech that, uh, that Stephen made that um, Moses considered that, um, that he was going to lead them out. Moses considered that he was going to be their Messiah. He was going to be their Redeemer. And all it was was a supposition. He supposed. So Acts 7, uh, 24, when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. So the defense was one day, the vengeance was a different day with premeditation and covering his tracks. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. (laughs) So see what happens when you suppose? When you suppose... um, those folks you're supposing don't uh, cooperate. They don't understand what you think they understand. All right, so what does it say next in Exodus? Uh, he sits down by a well, and God so graciously now is going to teach him what it was he got wrong back in Egypt. So the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. So you see what's happening here? It's curious to me. Because there's, there's mistreatment, bullying, if you will. There's mistreatment. There's harsh conditions. And in this case, though, it's not Moses' kinsmen. It's not Moses' people. It's not, they're total strangers. All right? Total strangers. What's his connection to these girls? They're Midianites. But see, what he was getting wrong, I think, what he was getting wrong in Egypt when he thought he was going to be the savior of the Jews, he was identifying with with those people because they were Jews. See, rather than just functioning in your own integrity as before the Lord, doing the right thing anyway, whether they were Jews or not, shouldn't, shouldn't matter. Anyway, 
So these seven, uh, evidently Jethro didn't have a boy. He just had seven girls in a row and maybe quit trying. I don't know. (laughs) You try and try and try and all you get are these girls. All right. So the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. He defends these girls. And uh, when they came to Rule, he's got several names, Rule and Jethro and, and a couple of other names. Uh, when they came to Rule, their father, and said, uh, he said, why have you come back so soon today? <laughs> I mean, this is, evidently this is a standard practice and they're usually very late getting back because of the mistreatment on the part of those shepherds. So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Isn't that interesting? They identified him as an Egyptian. He didn't identify himself as an Egyptian. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He tried to identify himself as a Hebrew. And then he gets out here and they don't even know he's a Hebrew. An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. So it's curious to me. You want to be a deliverer? Okay, you can be a deliverer, but you need training, you need preparation, and you're not ready yet, and they're not ready to be delivered yet. Moses is 40 years old. He won't deliver Israel until he's 80. And he won't be equipped to deliver Israel until he's humbled. Scripture says later that Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. He wasn't that humble at 40. Okay, It took the 40 years of the wilderness to humble him. Then At age 80, he was able to uh, begin his ministry because he he led Israel for 40 years from 80 to 120. All right, so um, he said to his daughters, well, where is he then? Bring that guy home. Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And so Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah or Zipporah, to Moses. All right, so this is the, uh, the issue here. And like I, I think I joked last week, I said, Moses flees Egypt and he gets a marvelous father-in-law. All right? Zipporah has issues and they struggle. In fact, like a lot of marriages, there's disagreement. This God of yours is a bridegroom of blood. She, she's um, pretty upset with Moses and his God. Later on. All right. Moses left Egypt for Midian on a faith basis with his eyes on the Lord. If, I'm, if all I'm reading is Exodus, I don't see the faith basis and I don't see his eyes on the Lord. But Hebrews 11 gives us what he considered and where his eyes were. Alright? And I think that's important. There's a reason why those details are not in Exodus, but why they are in Hebrews. And I think when we're looking around at one another, sometimes we're pretty judgmental. And we say, well, look at, look at what, I, I don't understand why Pastor Bob made the decision he made. And what's he looking at? He can't be looking to the Lord. He, you know what? I think Pastor Bob's been out of fellowship the last six weeks. Well, what do you think about Moses here in this chapter? Because if all you're looking at is Moses in this chapter, go to Hebrews 11 and you find out that his eyes were fixed firmly on the Lord. He, he, he departed in faith. We can go the other direction too. We can, uh, we can assume somebody is so spiritual looking to the Lord and they're not. It just looks like it. Okay? God looks on the heart. God knows who they're looking to. We look at the external appearances and we can be, uh, we can be bamboozled by uh, appearances. Moses' faith equipped him to see the unseen. Moses' faith equipped him to see the unseen. When you're looking at a verse 27, recognize Hebrews 11:27 says, "He endured as seeing him who is unseen." This is how he endured. I think I don't, I don't think you can separate those. I think if you don't have your eyes on the Lord, how do you endure? If your eyes are on the wrong object. If you have eyes on yourself, or you have eyes on the problem, or you have eyes on anything else other than God, what does that do to your endurance capacity? I think it destroys it. 
His faith equipped him to see the unseen. Hebrews 11.27, relate it back to verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So when you're walking by faith, you can see the unseen. It just takes your spiritual eyes to do it. And then Hebrews 12 says, once you see it, don't look away. Keep your eyes fixed. Keep your eyes fixed. Every once in a while you get those internet emails, chain email letter things, or Facebook pictures, Instagram, whatever. You see a, you see a frog, but it's actually a horse. You know what I'm talking about? And it says, you know, forward this as soon as you see the horse kind of a thing. But when you first look at it, it looks like a frog. And then if you tilt your head 90 degrees and look sideways, you can see it's a horse. And it's just, it's just the way it's drawn. I mean, it's clever. It's, you know, somebody with talent did that. There's other things too. I mean, there's plenty of optical illusions like that. The eye can, the eye can see things that aren't there because we get tricked. But we think they're there, and so we see what, what they want us to see. And then sometimes we can see something else. Well, okay, maybe that's a terrible illustration, but it's what I came up with this morning. The idea is when you're seeing by faith, you're using a different set of eyes. And so you may see something by faith whereby you are absolutely convicted and no one's going to talk you out of it because you see it. And as soon as you see it, you can't see anything else. You never go back and look at it another way. It's like the, the angel passages last hour. When you, when you see Satan in Isaiah 14, you can't look at that passage any other way. When you see Satan in Ezekiel 28, you can't look at that passage any other way. Because as soon as you see it for what it is, you don't go back to seeing it the way you used to see it. And so we can see the invisible, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and we keep our eyes on the unseen like Moses did. By faith he left Egypt as seeing the unseen. And once we do see it, we keep our eyes fixed. That's Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the whole history of the Old Testament, every believer, the ones that are mentioned and the ones that aren't mentioned, but they're in the Old Testament, they're for our instruction. We have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, we have to imitate them and go beyond anything they ever dreamed of. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which is so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have our own race, and it builds on their race. We have a race that goes far beyond anything. The church stewardship goes beyond anything Israel and their stewardship ever did. And then it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So in other words, not just seeing it, but staying locked on, staying fixed, keeping, once you see it, don't look away. Don't look away. Keep your eyes fixed. Yes, sir. We have an object for our faith, Jesus Christ. What object did Moses' faith have that allowed him to assume to himself the role of deliverer before God spoke to him about it many years later? That's a marvelous question. So uh, um, I'm going to repeat for the MP3 because people listen and they don't hear the question. Um, our, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, and I would say the object of Moses' faith, once he had his faith properly placed, was also Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, faith in God, faith in Jehovah, in Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Now I think at first, through human effort, when he was supposing that they considered he was their deliverer, he was right and he was wrong. He was right in that he was the deliverer, but he was wrong in that he was 40 years too early. And that he wasn't ready, the people weren't ready, and the, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet ready to be destroyed in the conquest. And so he was right on the issue, but he was wrong about the timing. And we do similar things. <laughs> we can be right about the issue, but wrong on the timing. Remember, the right thing done in the wrong way is still wrong. So that's a great question. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In other words, he's the source and he is the perfecting one. He is the perfecting one. So that means we look to him. That means we trust him by faith and we keep trusting him. 
Because the perfecting process is the suffering process. The perfecting process is whereby we learn as we continue to apply faith. Jesus was perfected by the things in which he suffered. That's how he learned obedience and the issues there. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Don't take your eyes off. If you take your eyes off, you're going to be like Peter. You're going to be sinking on the water. Okay? He got out of the boat because his eyes were fixed on Jesus. But as soon as he stopped looking to Jesus, what happened? He started looking around at the wind and the waves. He started to sink. So don't do that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And, you know, like the song says, you can walk on the water too. Just keep your eyes on the Lord. Look what Jesus did. Where was his eyes fixed? He had his eyes fixed. His eyes were fixed on the joy set before him. I believe his eyes were firmly on God the Father and the blessings that the Father had for him to sit at his right hand. The blessings the Father had to give him a name above all names. The uh, love of the Father and the Son right here. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the example, right? The example for Moses, the example for us. Keep your eyes where they're supposed to be. Run with endurance the race that he set before you. This is the race he's put you on. Keep keep looking to him. Jesus kept looking to his Father, who for the joy set before him. All right. Now, fleeing. Believers today should follow Moses' example, keeping our eyes on the unseen, paying attention to the things above. Believers today should follow Moses' example, keeping our eyes on the unseen, paying attention to the things above. Do you see what I'm saying? Keep seeing the unseen. How terrible would it be for Austin Bible Church to be a congregation that only used earthly eyes to look at earthly things? How stupid is that? I mean, what's the point of being saved if you can't use your earthly eyes? You know, walk by faith. Walk with the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the priority. Not what you will eat, what you will drink, square footage of your house, the uh, updated wardrobe, whatever it is. You know, people are constantly trying to compete with other people in whatever earthly thing keeping up with the Joneses and whatnot. So, uh, you know, look at the birds, look at the lilies, quit worrying about what you're going to eat and drink. God's taking care of you. And it said, your father knows you need these things, but seek first his kingdom. This is Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. If your spiritual eyes are open... Keep your spiritual priorities in line. Temporal life, God takes care of that. God takes care of that. Keep your spiritual life adjusted and watch how faithful God is with your temporal life. But I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. You've seen it too. You've seen believers. Maybe you've done this yourself in the past. You feel like, well, just this short little compromise. Well, just this short little thing. And uh, then everything will be taken care of. Then, then, boy, then I'll really make it up to God. Then I'll really, yeah, I mean, I mean boy, as soon as I get my career on track, boy, then I'm, then I'm going to be a serious, serious student of the Word of God. But right now I just got to do this. And when you put temporal life first, thinking that you'll make up for it later in your spiritual life, let me tell you, you're violating Matthew 6.33. And it says first. It doesn't say only. It's okay to seek ye second and seek ye third and seek ye fourth and you got other things that, that you're, you're seeking. It just says seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Make sure your spiritual eyes are open. Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Seeing the invisible. The things which are seen... 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. You know the passage I'm talking about? We do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Bodies get old. Physical bodies age. They wrinkle. They wear out. They die. 
But the inner man is stronger than ever before if you're in the Word of God. Renewed day by day. And um, as it says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Do you have the eyes to see it? We should. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's what we should be looking at. Quit looking at the, the stuff you can see. And start looking at the stuff you can't see. In other words, use your spiritual eyes. The things which are seen are temporary, temporal, but the things which are seen are eternal. Eternal. All right. So yeah, you know, you watch and, and it, it grows sweeter every day. Sweeter and sweeter every day. And the, you know, <laughs> the, that saggy, wrinkly old man you married years ago has more wrinkles and flab than he certainly and more gray hair and everything else. But that's just the outer man that's perishing day by day. You know, spiritually speaking, is he in the Word of God? Is he walking before the Lord? <laughs> you know? Anyway, spiritual supermodel related to the uh, renewal day by day. Colossians 3, a passage I like to use at baptisms. Because I raise them up, the person comes up out of the water, I lift them up out of the water and say, all right, if then you have been raised up. And since I brought them out of the water, they have been raised up. (laughs) Of course, spiritually, they're raised up already in Christ. They're believers. They've died in Christ, they've been buried in Christ, they've been raised in Christ. So therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things on earth. I'm sorry. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you're dead to sin, why are you still doing it? If you're dead to this world, why are you still living in it and loving it? Don't love this world or the things of this world. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. And of course, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Where is He? He's not on earth, I'll tell you that. He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. So if I'm dwelling on my problem, if I'm dwelling on my bills, if I'm dwelling on my health, if I'm dwelling on whatever it is, I'm dwelling on the wrong thing. I'm dwelling on something that's not seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because my bills are not seated at the right hand of God the Father. My health is not seated at the right hand of God the Father. But my Savior is. I'm going to keep my faith focused there. I'm going to keep my attention there. So we follow Moses' example. You see, there's a time to flee and a time not to flee. And both can be done by faith. There's a time to flee and a time not to flee. And both can be done by faith. You know, Moses didn't fear the king, so why did he flee? He fled by faith. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Moses fled. So you can flee by faith and you can stand your ground by faith. The secret, of course, is uh, what's the race set before you? What would the Lord have you do? And the course set before you, is it a fleeing course or is it a stand your ground course? We don't design our own course. God designs it for us. We just run the race that he sets, that he establishes. And I just picked a sampling of these verses from the Gospel of John, I think. These are good passages. John chapter 7. And, and by using Jesus as the example, we have, of course, the Moses example. I think we have the David example time and time again. David would go to different caves. He would go to different cities. He would flee to different places. But then there were times he wouldn't flee. And is it time to flee? Is it time to stay? Well, what is it? So there's a time to flee and a time to not flee. Like Ecclesiastes says, right? There's a time for every event under the sun. There's a time to flee and there's a time to not flee. Mo- uh, David, frequently, I mean, he would just make it a prayer item. Say, Lord, 
He gets tequila and, and says, Lord, if I'm still here when Saul gets here, are they going to give me up? And the Lord said, yep, the men of Keilah will give you over in a heartbeat if, if you're still here when, when Saul shows up. So David says, all right, thank you, Lord, I'm out of here. <laughs> and he takes off. And because he flees from Keilah, Saul never gets to Keilah. There's doctrine in that episode. All right, John chapter 7. The, um, this is in the fall. This is the Feast of Booths. And not just any Feast of Booths, this is the Feast of Booths immediately preceding the crucifixion. Okay, so this is October time frame, September, October time frame. In the fall of 32 AD, Jesus will be on a cross the following, uh, the following spring, right? Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD is when Jesus goes to the cross. So this is the fall immediately six months prior to the cross. The Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths was near. And his brothers said, leave here. Go to Judea, John 7, 3. Go to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. They're not even believers yet. They're, they're unsaved. They don't get saved till after the resurrection. So what kind of advice can they give him? <laughs> you know, What kind of advice does the pastor take from a bunch of unbelievers on how to build your church ministry? I'm sure they got tons of opinions. So Jesus said, uh, you guys go on ahead. But see, they think that, you know, Galilee is small time. You want to hit big time, you got to go to Jerusalem. You know, like telling a stage actor, yeah, you're great in the Georgetown Community Theater, but man, you got to get to Broadway. That's when, you know, that's when you're really going to be famous. So as far as the brothers were concerned, Galilee was just nothing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This whole chapter is illustrating how we look at things differently. Believers and unbelievers, and even believers with divine viewpoint look at things differently from carnal believers or untaught believers, uh, immature believers, babes in Christ. They're not going to see things the same way that older believers will. Verse 5 says, not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. Notice that? That's in verse 6. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Hey, let's face it. Unbelievers live in this fallen world and it suits them. This is their cosmos system. They are of their father, the devil, and this is, you know, we're the, we're the odd duck. We're the fish out of water. They are, they are at home in this fallen cosmos system. Anyway, he finally does. He, he sends them on alone without him, and then he follows along later, secretly, as it were. Not publicly, but as if in secret. Just low-key. Just with some discretion. Just be, uh, be smart about what you're doing. And so there's all the buzz going around. Well, where is he? Where is he? Why isn't he here? A lot of arguments back and forth. He's a good man. No, he's terrible. All right. But then finally, in the midst of the feast, it's a seven-day feast, and so in the midst of it, he stands up. He just can't help himself anymore, and he's going to start preaching. And the crowd is amazed. Hey, this is he. This is he. And then, of course, the, the religious leaders want him arrested. So this is the backdrop for this. And in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? <laughs> Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him? The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? See, they're pretty suspicious of their leaders. You know, the leaders can say something, but maybe, maybe they know something they're not telling us. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Well, that shows you the religious leaders did a terrible job teaching them about, about Bethlehem and about Nazareth and about Galilee. There's a prophecy about Galilee and the Gentiles. But the leaders didn't teach the people that. Anyway, all this teaching. Now they're, seek they're seeking to seize him in verse 30. They were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. This is a time to flee. You know, if, they, if the mob succeeds in grabbing him and ripping him apart or stoning him to death or putting a sword through him or whatever... If they kill him in the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Booths, 
what happens to Passover? What happens to the fulfillment? What happens to the plan of God where the Lamb of God is the Passover? He can't die before April 3rd. This is a time to flee. And so it says, no man laid his hand on him. And I don't know, there's other passages that say he passed through their midst. Almost like he becomes ethereal. It becomes intangible. It becomes like almost you know, ghostish kind of thing. As a miracle, a prophetic miracle. He's an Old Testament prophet. And they try to lay hands on him and he just slips through their grasp. If you will. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? I think this was a sign. They saw it. They called it a sign. Because if this isn't a sign, what else did he do in this chapter? He just stood up and spoke. But I think the slipping away from their grasp became a sign. Over to chapter 8. Another time to flee. In verse 20. There's a lot of conflict in this chapter too. Verse 19, they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury and as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. There was an occasion, it's not in John, I think it's in Matthew and Luke. He's in... uh, Nazareth where he grew up and they tried to shove him off a cliff but passing through their midst he departed okay I think he did a lot of that he puts his disciples in a boat sends them off stays on this side of the shore where everybody's watching okay and then in the middle of the night he walks across the water I think he did a lot of that leaving the uh, adversary kind of which way did he go you know where is he now even Judas didn't know where the last supper was going to be he said, go on in there and follow a guy with a water pitcher. He's going to take you to an upper room. Jesus didn't know which upper room. Judas didn't know which upper room. I like that kind of stuff. All right, there's time to flee. Chapter 11. Now here in chapter 11 we've got a hinge because verse 6 gives way to verse 7 and 8. In John chapter 11, this is the resurrection of Lazarus chapter. and this is uh, I used this, I preached this at the graveside for Pat Sr. on Friday. Because that's great. Jesus went to a wedding and Jesus went to a funeral. He turned water to wine at the wedding and he brought the dead guy back at the funeral. Okay, I didn't do that. I said, why would we do something so sad and bring Pat Pearson back to this earth? Okay. But in John chapter 11 um we have Lazarus, his sisters, Mary and Martha. And the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So there will be death, but it won't end in death. He'll come back to life. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. All right? Just remaining in hiding, remaining uh, in the undisclosed location that people go to when they're undisclosed. All right. But then after this, so he stayed two days longer. So what is this now? On the third day? After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So there's a time to flee, and then there's a time to just, hey, let's go. Let's go stand before these people. Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, um, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? They were happy to stay in the verse 6 mode of let's just hide here. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, it's not time for that. Yesterday was time for that. The day before was time for that. Today it's time to go stand forth. And uh, it's curious to me, I think the only one in this chapter, I think, I don't know, Thomas 
He gets a lot of criticism. We call him Doubting Thomas because of a different episode. But when Jesus says, let's go, Thomas says, all right, let's go. In verse 16, Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's go also so that we may die with him. Now, depending on his tone of voice, which the text doesn't give us tone of voice, <laughs> he could be excited. Thomas could be saying, all right, let's go die with Jesus. Or he's all gloomy and doubting Thomas because of the other episode we read into this episode and we call him Doubting Thomas. So here he's being very depressed and saying, okay, fine, let's go and die. He's the original Eeyore from (laughs) Winnie the Pooh. But when you look at verse 6 and you look at verses 7 and 8, there's a time to flee or to hide and there's a time to stop hiding or to not flee. And that's not our timing, it's his timing. The timing is all God's business on this race that's set before us. It's not ours. So the time to not flee. Now if if this is truly a hinge, what happens now when uh, Jesus does return and what happens in these next chapters? Notice in chapter 12, I mean how close are we now at this point? He's under, he's under constant, um, when you get to the end of chapter 11, it's, it's, it's a nonstop desire to kill him. He has to be careful about where he walks in verse 54. But the Passover is approaching and he knows that's it. Passover is the day. And uh, now of course the hubbub is, ooh, is he going to come to Passover? Because he skipped half of trumpets or booths and now he's uh, Passover is approaching. Do you think he'll be here at all? Because the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders if anyone knew where he was he was to report it so that might seize him. Alright, so six days before Passover when we get to John 12, six days before Passover he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Who, Yeah, Lazarus didn't stay dead. They want to kill him too. They want him to die again. They want to re-kill Lazarus. So the cross is approaching. And in chapter 12 and verse 23, what does it say? The hour has come. Here's Philip and here's Andrew and they're bringing Greeks to see Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Three and a half years of public ministry. Three and a half years since the baptism in the River Jordan. And here he is now, ready to go to Passover. By the way, the the year prior he didn't go to Passover. The year prior he stayed on the northeast shore of Galilee and he fed the 5,000. He did not go to Passover the year year prior. It's the only one in his life he ever missed. So yeah, now they're wondering, is he going to come to this one? He missed last one. All right. The hour has come. Chapter 13 and verse 1. The hour has come. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think a lot of Christians will love at least up to a certain point. And then they draw a line in the sand and they say, well, that's enough. (laughs) What have they done for me lately? Or, uh, you know, that's just a bridge I'm not going to cross. No, be faithful until death. He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So Jesus gets up and lays aside his garments and washes their feet. (laughs) Because he loved them to the end. And it's beautiful. It is not the time to flee. It is the time to go to the cross. John chapter 17 Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes. The same night, by the way, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. This is the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. They actually leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14. Because Judas has gone out to uh, fetch the soldiers. Anyway. 
they get to um, chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Goes to the garden, he prays, and this is where Judas shows up with the soldiers. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden and in, the, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. When he went back to fetch those soldiers, this is where he was bringing them. Judas then, having received the cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is the one thing they got Herodians and Sadducees and Pharisees all to agree. Normally they disagreed with each other, but this time they agreed. Jesus has to die. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. So he said to them, I am, ego Amy, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> the creator God of the universe. You know, he had laid aside his privileges, he had humbled himself, he was, but this is a night of passion, and this is a night of temptation, and he's, he's been praying Father, can this cup pass by me? Not my will, but thine be done. He's been praying. And he tells them to pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And you wonder, what kind of stress is he under at this moment? So that when he says, ego eimi, this is the the very utterance of the I am, like Exodus 3.14. The I am, creator God of the universe, says I am. No wonder they fell over. I'm hoping this is on DVD too. I want to watch this. I want to laugh so hard when I watch this. All right. So he again asked them, whom do you see? You kind of imagine, did he pick them up? Did he, you know, did, were there angels on hand to get them back up on their feet again? Jesus, the Nazarene, he answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lose not one. So none of the disciples are going to die this night. They're going to flee. They're going to escape. It's time for them to flee. First Peter tries to grab a sword and do some of his own swashbuckling there. But Jesus isn't fleeing. There's a time to flee and a time not to flee. And both are done by faith. Both are done by faith. All right. Well, Moses fled and he fled in faith. And thank God that he did. God in his wisdom knew that to prepare Moses to be the deliverer was not going to happen in Pharaoh's house. It was going to happen in Jethro's house. It was going to happen as a nobody. It was going to happen in, uh, as a shepherd. David had to be prepared to be a shepherd, to be king. Moses had to be a shepherd, to be a king. The shepherds were loathsome in the eyes of the Egyptians. Moses had to become a shepherd so he could deliver them from Egypt. And sometimes when we're walking by faith, we don't understand. Why this turn? Why that turn? Why that turn? We don't know that all these turns are taking us where we're going to be 20 years from now. And we can't think that far ahead, but God's got it all worked out. It's a beautiful thing. I forget who said it. I, uh, I steal it. I think I heard it from Chuck Swindoll, but I think he stole it from somebody else. They've probably been stealing this for hundreds of years now, but Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody. And then he spent 40 years thinking he was a nobody. And then he spent 40 years watching what God could do with a nobody. And that's, that's a sermon right there. I mean, that's just what we do when we walk by faith. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the example of Moses. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for showing us there's a time to flee and a time to not flee. And when you call upon us to stand fast, we're going to stand fast. And when you call upon us to, to flee, we're going to flee. We're going to obey you no matter what, Father. And we're not fleeing because we're afraid of martyrdom or we're afraid of persecution and we're afraid. We're not fleeing in fear. We're fleeing in faith when you call us to do so. 
And likewise, Father, we're not going to fight in fear. We're going to fight in faith, fighting the good fight of faith as uh, your word commands us to do. So, Father, we give you the praise and glory for this day. Thank you for this past completed week, Father, uh, the funeral on Thursday, the funeral on Friday. Continue to be with the family members and uh, the loved ones. And, Father, we just uh, rejoice that, uh, that our sister and our brother are now face-to-face with Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.